Well, my best friend Michael, he was walking shakily towards the steps of the local courthouse. Today, he would be hearing, he would be attending a hearing of someone in violation of road rules. He wasn't attending as a solicitor. He wasn't attending as a member of the jury. He was attending as the guilty party. So what heinous crime had he committed that had got him into traffic court? Had he sped through a red light? Had he crashed into another vehicle and caused an accident? Had he parked in a no-stopping zone? Well, one of our good friends had just bought a new car. And he offered my friend Michael the opportunity to take out the new car for a ride. And Michael, he was still on his pee license at the moment. So he put his green peas on the back of Bradley's new car. And he drove about 500 meters when a policeman pulled him over. The policeman asks for his license, asks for the ID, and he starts to inspect the car. He senses that something is not quite right with this situation. Well, he pulls open the hood. He has a look inside. He looks at every nook and cranny, and he says to Michael, do you realize that you're driving a car that's got a turbo engine in it? Now, Michael had no idea, but so he said, I had no idea. And the officer said, well, if you're on your full license like the owner of the car, Bradley had, then that was perfectly fine. But because he was still on his green peas, it was illegal for him to be driving a car with a turbo engine in it. Well, Michael tried to explain the situation. He tried to explain it wasn't his car. He tried to explain he had no idea. And all he had driven was about 500 meters. And yet the police officer simply gave him a fine and told him that his license was at risk of being taken. Well, needless to say, Michael was not happy with the fact that he had been given no opportunity to plead his case. And so Michael decided to go to court to have his case heard, to make his plea before the judge, to say that he had been unjustly punished for a crime that he didn't willfully commit. The judge heard his case and he deemed that Michael was, in fact, innocent. And so the fine was made null and his license was safe. And the turbo car might look a little bit like that. Not quite that fancy. Now, in this experience, Michael wasn't asking for much. In fact, he was asking for only one thing, for his case to be heard, for him to be able to have a fair trial. Now, technically, the police officer hadn't done anything wrong. The police officer had the authority to, on the spot, punish Michael for doing something illegal. So what he did was right, but it wasn't necessarily fair either. To be fair would have allowed Michael an opportunity to defend his case. Now, when we're accused of something, we all feel the same way that my friend Michael did in that circumstance. We want an opportunity to have our case heard. We want someone to not just immediately rush to the judgment, but for us to have an opportunity to share our side of the story. And this is at the very heart of the character and nature of God as well. God allows humanity an opportunity to plead their case before him before he executes his judgment. God comes in, he investigates the situation to, and he makes sure that he is not only just, but that he is also merciful and fair. Now, like the police officer, God is not obligated to do that. God is well within his right and he has the authority to simply, when we've done the wrong thing, 
give us the rightful punishment that we deserve. And yet God in his mercy allows for an opportunity for us to plea our case. He allows for there to be, to be time for the case to be investigated. So this morning, I want to equip you with some stories straight from Scripture that demonstrate how God comes in and investigates judgment before he executes it. And we're going to be turning all throughout the Bible this morning, but there are two main stories that we're going to be keeping our fingers in, which will be Genesis 3 and Genesis 18. Uh, The other texts I'll have up on the screen, but if you have your fingers in those two spots, you'll be good for this morning. And although we'll be looking at a lot of stories, I want for you to have these stories in your arsenal, kind of in your pocket to uh, have these at the ready. But rather than memorizing all of these, I want for us to see the ongoing pattern or the principle that underlies all of these stories. So while, yes, all the stories are good, remember as many as you can, but most importantly, remember the principles that are behind them. So let's turn to our first story, all the way in Genesis chapter 3. And you might already be there. Genesis chapter 3. And the context to this story is very simple. God creates the beautiful Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. And in there, he places two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One brings life. The second one brings sin and death into the world. And God gives Adam and Eve the opportunity to either show their love to him by continually eating from the tree of life, or they can choose to not do things God's way and eat from the second tree. And one day Eve wanders to the bad tree and Satan in the guise of a serpent tempts her to eat the fruit. She convinces Eve that God is not to be trusted and she decides to, that God shouldn't be her authority, that she can do it by herself. And let's have a look at the result in verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. What is the immediate result of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? There's shame. They feel exposed. They feel uncomfortable. They feel guilty. All of these feelings immediately rush into them as soon as they understand they've done the wrong thing. So what does God do in response to this? Adam and Eve, they've, God gave Adam and Eve one rule to follow. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They've broken this rule. They've broken the law. How is God going to respond? We get his response in verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, already there's a clue there as to what God is doing. As we said earlier, God could, he has every right to, on the spot, as soon as we've done the wrong thing, to immediately dole out the punishment. And yet here, Adam and Eve, not only do they have the opportunity to sew these fig leaves together, but it indicates that God has not yet punished them. They've committed the crime, and yet God is going to take some time to figure out what's happened. 
He comes down from heaven into the garden to investigate what the situation is. And then in verses 9 through 12, or 13, we see the investigation process. It says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you you should not eat? Then Adam said, the woman you gave to me, uh, she gave me the the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And Eve said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Now, did you notice God asks repeatedly over and over again several questions? How many questions does God ask Adam and Eve? See if you can count them. How many questions does God ask Adam and Eve? After he comes down into the garden. There's, where are you? Then he asks, who told you that you were naked? Then he asks, um, Adam, have you eaten from the tree? And then he asks Eve, what is this that you have done? So God asks a series of four questions to Adam and Eve. But why does he ask these questions? Does God know the answer to all of these questions? Yes. He knows where Adam is. He knows that they've eaten from the tree. He knows why they've hidden themselves. He knows all of the answers to these questions. So why does he ask Adam and Eve these questions? What, who benefits from God asking these questions that have answers he already knows? Well, I think there are three Parties who benefit from these questions. The first party is Adam and Eve, or the guilty party. They now have an opportunity to plead their case before God. God, before he's come down to execute judgment, or exonerate them, as it may be, they get the opportunity to go through due process. And God effectively gives them a fair trial. God asks them questions. Well, what's the situation? And we can see that Adam and Eve's defense is pretty poor, isn't it? They simply say, well, we hid because we were afraid. And then God says, well, why did you eat? Well, Eve gave me the fruit. And Eve just says, well, the serpent made me. So they've they've had the opportunity to defend their case, and it's a pretty poor defense. Secondly, the angels and any other created beings on looking, they now get to hear Adam and Eve's really pathetic excuse of a plea. They have the opportunity to hear from Adam and Eve's own mouth why they deserve their punishment. And now, rather than being hesitant onlookers, the angels and other created beings can look at the situation and can affirmatively say, justice must be done. They've heard the poor excuses made by Adam and Eve, and they can recognize that they are, in fact, a rightfully guilty party and that God must step in to enact justice. And finally, the character of God is properly and fully displayed. Through the process, God is seen as merciful and fair because he allows Adam and Eve an opportunity to share their case. And through this investigation, they've shown themselves to be guilty. And now when God does execute judgment, he's seen as just and righteous rather 
than dictatorial. Now imagine if Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit, and the moment they ate from the fruit, they dropped down dead. And the angels, they come down into the garden and they just happen to find, you know, Adam and Eve dead there on the ground. They go, what happened here? And God says, well, you know, they disobeyed the rule. They go, well, maybe there was more to the story. And so if God were to immediately act like that, there would be fear instilled in the created beings that God had made. Disobey God and you're gone like that. But by choosing to investigate the situation before executing his judgment, God reveals the gravity of the sin that has been committed. He reveals that he is merciful in allowing the guilty party an opportunity to plead their case. And he is viewed as being just in rightfully executing judgment. Let's speed through two other examples in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel, before giving a judgment sentence, God comes down and has another conversation with Cain. And here's what he says. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Notice again, God asks Cain these questions. God watched all of these events take place. He knows that Cain killed Abel. He knows why Cain killed Abel. And yet he asks Cain, and in so doing, Cain effectively gives his side of the story. He gives his case, and it's a pretty poor excuse of a case. Cain is motivated by jealousy. He, in a fit of anger, kills his brother. And so now we've heard Cain's side of the story. Cain deserves for judgment and justice. Similarly, you come to the Tower of Babel. We know the the people uh, after the flood were building a tower in defiance to God. And notice what it says God does when he comes to see or investigate what's happening at the Tower of Babel. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. Very similar to how God comes down from heaven into the garden to speak with Adam and Eve, or how God comes down to speak with Cain and Abel. And we find this verse right before God confuses the languages in Babel. He first comes down and sees for himself what is taking place at the Tower of Babel. Now, let's turn to our other main text, and this is our halfway point in the sermon this morning as well. Genesis chapter 18. And it's surprising the amount of examples we can find of God using this investigation process just in Genesis alone. Genesis chapter 18, and we'll read verse 20. But this is a story relating to the, the, the imminent destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And really, these cities were about as evil as you could come by. Later in the Bible, if you wanted to compare how evil a nation was, you would say something like, well, you're nearly as bad as Sodom, or you're even worse than the city of Gomorrah. These places were effectively a measuring stick for how evil you could be. So this is the worst of the absolute worst. There's excess, indulgence, sexual morality. There's abuse and neglect of the poor, the widow, the orphan. It's just a a den of evil and corruption. 
And any of us, we would look at a city like Sodom and Gomorrah and we would see the pain and the suffering going on in that city and we would immediately wipe it off the face of the earth without a second thought. But what does God do instead? Listen to what God says about Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 20. The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. That to me is an absolute, just an incredible verse that speaks to this principle. Once again, notice the language. God says, I will go down. That God comes down from heaven to investigate the situation for himself, just like he did in uh, the Garden of Eden, just like he did in Babel. As now we see again, God comes down. And notice what he says. I'm going to see whether the reports that I've heard are the actual reality. And he says, only once I've gone down myself and investigated myself, Will I know? That's very unusual for God to say because he clearly already knows. But to be fair and merciful to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God decides that he will allow a period for him to go down and see if the outcry that he has heard, those reports that he's heard, match reality. So, once again, Who benefits from this situation? Well, definitely Sodom and Gomorrah benefit. They now have the opportunity to prove God wrong. And if they can, if the reports that God heard aren't accurate and Sodom and Gomorrah is a great place to live, they can uh, avoid judgment. So they have uh, the opportunity to to prove whether these accusations are false. Once again, the angels and onlookers get an opportunity to see if God's judgment is righteous. And in this story, God actually sends down two angels into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to investigate for him. And when the angels go into the city, they're disguised as ordinary men. They immediately are assaulted by all of the men in the city. The angels see for themselves They can see the sin and the evil in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they now know it is a necessity that God intervenes, that he doesn't allow evil to continue on any longer, and that he judges rightfully Sodom and Gomorrah. And once again, God's character is seen as merciful because he gives Sodom and Gomorrah this evil, evil place, an opportunity to plead their case. And once again, when the angels themselves see that the cities are guilty, when God enacts justice, he is seen as a good and righteous judge. Now, just reading through those texts, we're we're getting a deeper and more beautiful picture of the character, the mercy and the love and forgiveness of God. And yet it continues to go even further. Not only does God enact a process of investigative judgment, but he allows for his investigative judgment to be investigated. If we read uh, right after that text, verse 22, 
It says, the men turned away from there and they went to Sodom. But Abraham stood with the Lord. Abraham came near and said, God, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you also destroy that place and not spare it for 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare all of the people for their sakes. And then it continues on. Abraham keeps saying to God, well, what if there were 20 people? What if there were 10? I think the last number is 10. And God says to Abraham, all right, if there are 10 righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they can be spared from judgment. Now, already that's this principle of God saving Sodom and Gomorrah. If there are just 10 righteous, already that's merciful. But notice that God allowed for Abraham to interact with him in the judgment process. He allows for Abraham to give his input and Abraham actually influences the outcome of what will happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And even that is such a radical idea. Why does God need input from other people to judge righteously? Well, the fact is he doesn't. God can judge accurately without anyone's contributions. So why does God allow Abraham to help him in this investigative judgment process? God is being completely transparent with his judgment. He allows other people to see why he is doing what he is doing. All parties can agree that God is fair and just. And yet, even though he is an all-knowing, all-powerful, created God of the universe, he sometimes allows his own created beings to assist him. Another example is in 1 Kings 22. And I've got the slide up here for you. When uh, God is about to judge the, the evil, evil king Ahab, the prophet Micaiah describes to Ahab a vision he has had. Listen to the... Uh, this vision. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all of the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So this is who is going to convince Ahab to uh, get what he deserves, essentially. So one spirit suggested this. Another spirit suggested that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And then God sends this this angel, presumably, on a mission. But notice God surrounds himself with these angels or created beings, and he asks them for input and advice as to how to go about the judgment of King Ahab. And he's actually listening to the discussion that they have. One angel says this, another angel says that. And when one angel comes up before God, God listens to him and he allows the angel to go forward with his plan. It's a radical idea. We find a similar, very, very similar idea in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 verses 13 and 17. This is once again uh, a judgment on an evil king. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, an absolute tyrant of a ruler. And he has a dream which he tries to explain to Daniel. Here's what the dream is. 
I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. This is presumably an angel. The angel cried and said this, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, then let him graze with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let him, let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. So this is just an image to portray what will happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He's a great mighty tree, a great mighty ruler, but he'll be cut down and made like an animal of the field. But notice verse 17. This decision is by the decree of who? The watchers or the angels. And the sentence by the word of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives to it whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. So in this vision, Nebuchadnezzar describes this angel coming down And the angel verbally says to Nebuchadnezzar that this judgment that he is experiencing is a decision made by the watchers or the angels, the holy ones. Now, clearly, the ultimate ultimate decision maker in this process is God. And yet it seems as though, similar to the judgment of Ahab, that God has included the angels or the holy ones, the watchers, to influence and give input into this judgment process. So much so that the watchers claim that this decision is their own. They have such an investment in this that they can rightfully and accurately say this is a judgment made by the watchers. And the final text we have is Revelation 20 verse 4. And this is the part where we come in personally. You and me are right here. We can be found in Revelation 20, verse 4, after the, the second coming, after we're in heaven, God now entrusts to us the same exact process. It says, I saw thrones, and they, that is the saints or God's people, the Christians, they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So here we have this period of time during the saints' reign with Christ for a thousand years, where God commits judgment to his people. Once again, God is asking for the input of others in his judgment. And this time it's not angels. This time it's not Abraham. This time it's you and me. We get to play a role in this judgment. And so now when we... When we have the opportunity, when we get to heaven and we have that opportunity to read through the records that God has created, we get to investigate God's investigative judgment and we can see for our own eyes that the judgment that God has said is accurate and true. We can know for ourselves that God was right in what he did and that he was fair and just and merciful in his process. We get to validate that for ourselves, which is an incredible idea. Once again, God doesn't need my input. God doesn't need any of our input to tell him what's right and what's wrong. 
and yet so that we can understand the character of God, so that we can verify that, yes, God is a righteous and merciful judge, he gives us the opportunity to participate in that process. Now, while having a deeper and fuller understanding of the beautiful character of God, it builds us up in our Christian faith and our relationship with God, I do want to add an additional practical element that we can draw from this concept. What I think we can draw from this is that you can have complete assurance that God will judge fairly. You can have the certainty that the case of every single human being will be heard and that God will listen to it. Now, why is that important to know? Well, many of us in our lives have people that we may worry for. We might have family members who have never accepted Jesus. We might have people in our life who they never had the opportunity to hear about God. Maybe the only picture of God that they ever knew was a distorted image that Satan had concocted for them. Maybe we know someone who was too young to accept, tragically died before they had the opportunity to make that decision. Maybe we have a family member who grew old and right before they passed away, maybe because of the suffering and the pain and the sickness they experienced, they gave up their faith. Their whole life they were a firm believer, but maybe just in that last month they decided they didn't want to worship God. Maybe in an act of uh, desperation we know of someone who's died by their own hand. Maybe we we know someone who has been pondering, making that decision for God. They were this close. And then something tragic happened. There are so many different situations, so many people that we all personally know in our life, and we think to ourselves, what will happen to them? We question their eternity. But rest assured that we can look at these passages in Scripture And know that God will investigate the cases of our loved ones, our friends, and our family. He is the one that will make sure that he takes into account everyone's circumstances. He will judge fairly and make sure that uh, the right thing is done. I think what we see here is that God takes things, his judgment, on a very literal case-by-case basis. The standard of God's moral law is unchanging. But God is not unfair and doesn't take into account the varying circumstances we find ourselves in life. He will not judge us unfairly. And one day, as we've read here in Revelation, you and I will get to investigate those cases of our friends and family. And whatever the outcome may be, we will be able to verify with our own eyes and with our own mouth that God did make make the right decision. What about you, though? If God were to come down, as as we've read, God likes to come down and investigate. If he were to come down to your home this afternoon for a, a nice lunch and he were to investigate your life, what would he find? If it's anything like my life, he'd find a lot of sin. And a lot of problems, and I would be in some big trouble. So how can we make sure that we're not found guilty? How can we be found innocent 
in the eyes of God. Well, you might remember back in our first passage in Genesis 3, what did Adam and Eve do as soon as they sinned and as soon as they heard God coming to investigate? What did they do? They hid. And what did they try and hide their naked bodies with? Fig leaves. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to sow fig leaves before. I think you'd be pretty unsuccessful. They're not really the the greatest, most durable things in the world. I reckon they probably tried it and it probably fell straight away. In other words, Adam and Eve tried to cover up their own mistakes with their own human works. They thought that they, by themselves, could cover up their own sin. They could cover up the mistakes they'd made. And with their own strength and in their own might, could maybe get past God's judgment. Sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that too. Well, you know, if we cover up all the bad things we do with enough good things, maybe, maybe, you know, we'll get away with it. But to go back to the police officer analogy, you can be a perfect uh, driver on the road. But if you go through a speeding, you know, if you speed, the police officer doesn't really care that you're a safe driver. He just cares that you sped through the road. So if we can't cover up our own mistakes with our own good works, we need someone else to cover us up. When Adam and Eve, their fig leaves, uh, weren't enough to cover themselves up, God killed a lamb and he used the skins from the lamb to cover Adam and Eve. It was God who clothed Adam and Eve. And that lamb was a picture of Jesus who would one day die for our sins as well. Not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he lived a perfect life, completely righteous, without sin. And if we accept the cloth to be clothed in Christ and his righteousness, then when God comes to investigate our lives, instead of seeing the filthiness of our sin, he will see the purity of the life of Christ. So, what does God's investigative judgment tell us about him well it tells us that god is fair that god is merciful that god is just that god listens to you that god hears the outcry of those suffering that god allows for time to pass that god is patient that god allows input into his decisions That God examines us on a case-by-case basis. He is fair in his judgment. And that God wants you to have eternal life. Or if we were to summarize all of those things into one word, God is love. Take comfort in knowing that God is a fair judge. That he judges righteously. And that for perhaps our friends and family that we worry about, Take assurance that God will do the right thing by them. Have assurance that you will one day get to see their cases as well. Have assurance in knowing that God wants to offer you eternal life because of what Jesus has accomplished. Thank you.